morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all of you. Thank you very much for joining today's policy seminar. The conflict in Ukraine has recently entered its seventh month, and as we know, is leading to rising prices for food, fuel, and fertilizers, which are negatively impacting the economies and food systems of many low- and middle-income countries. The title of our seminar today is The Ukraine Crisis, Unraveling the Impacts and Policy Responses in These Countries. Um, it is the sixth event in IFPRI's special seminar series dedicated to the crisis. Let me uh, turn the floor over to Jo Swinnen, who is the Global Director for the Systems uh, Transformation Science Group within the 1CGIR, and also serves as the Director General of IFPRI to welcome all of us to the seminar. Thank you very much, Charlotte, uh, and uh, congratulations to all of you who've been putting uh, this uh, seminar together and everybody who contributed to the analysis which are uh, leading up to the seminar, which will be presented today. Um, it's an, um, another important step, I think, in our seminar series, as you said yourself. I think the importance of the issue really needs no introduction. Uh, the war in Ukraine has continued now over more than six months, and the, conf the conflict there was imposed or has itself imposed on a very difficult situation in the world already in terms of food security caused by, among other things, COVID-19 and, and climate change and a number of other uh, factors. Um, recently, there are some promising signs of food prices have gone down somewhat. Um, on global markets and a recent agreement allows uh, temporary grain exports from the regions. But you know, from a, a global perspective, historical perspective, the food prices, the fertilizer price still remain very high and it still continue, uh, continue to impose pressures on consumers, on farmers around the world. And so the end, the impact of the longer term impact, the medium term impact remain um, unclear. So there's a lot of issues, a lot of uh, uh, questions to be addressed. The, this is particularly concerning for the low and middle income countries. Many of those, particularly in the MENA region, but also beyond, are affecting, are affected directly by their food imports being uh, affected. But uh, there are also uh, different ways these countries have been affected, for example, by accumulating high levels of debts, low level of foreign reserves after coping, of coping with economic shocks due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, this affects these countries' capacity to deal with the current shocks and, and potentially future shocks as well in the coming months. And so therefore, it's critical, I think, to understand both the global effects and the country-specific effects. Uh, IFPRI has contributed to this understanding in a number of different ways. Over the past six months, we have looked at, uh, we have done a number of model run analyses, market studies, looking at global and regional effects, analyzing impacts on GDP, on poverty, uh, nutrition, and uh, food security. And also, of course, also the efficacy, the efficiency of certain uh, policy responses, why some would be better than others. Today, I think is a very important step in, in, our, anal in our set of analyses that we do in, in the, the communication that we do around them. Uh, if we has launched a series of new country studies, they have been co-supervised by Chen Shen Jiao, James Sturlow and Paul Doros. Chen Shen and James Aridas today will present. They are combining IFPRI's modeling capacities, modeling capabilities with detailed knowledge of the country. And I think this is, I've joined IFPRI uh, two and a half years ago now, and I've been very impressed by the combination of these things, which I think is really unique in the world. 
And so these are based on, on our modeling capacities, but also our local partnerships, our in-country staffs, the presence there. And I think it makes you uh, unique. And I definitely want to contribute, uh, congratulate uh, everybody who's worked on this boat, our, our IFPRI staff, but also the, the partners in the different countries we have worked with this. We have now results for 19 different countries for each of these policy briefs. Reports have been written. These are available on, on our dedicated website. Shinshan and James will present some uh, uh, key findings of these studies, also the methodologies that have been used for this. And in the presentation today, the discussion will go in detail in, in three country studies or three country analysis, if you want, because it goes beyond the studies. We look at uh, Nigeria, Egypt, and Kenya. Uh, these countries obviously have not been chosen by, by uh, coincidence. Egypt and Nigeria are among the largest imports of wheat in the world. And this grain, the, the, the wheat imports, really makes up a large part of the local diets. Kenya has, may have been insulated from Russia from direct, or the Russia conflict, the Ukraine conflict from direct import effect, but it has been imp impacted very strongly by the increase in global food prices and also by the fertilizer costs, which really play an important role there. And it'd be great to uh, learn from the in, uh, lessons from that country about how to deal with this. We have an excellent uh, setup of lineup of speakers here today, representing both beyond our IFPRI researchers, the public and the private sectors of these countries. And they will, I think, present, uh, contribute to important, valuable perspectives on local realities and policy responses in these countries. So before I'm gonna pass the floor to Xingxian and James, I would say uh, an extra word of appreciation to USAID, which has really been a very strong supporter of our work in this thing. And we are very pleased to have Chris Hilbrunner with us today. Chris has been a real champion of this, and uh, we're really great that he could find time to join us today and to contribute his views on this. So thanks again, uh, Chris, for all your support for this. And with that, I'm happy to pass the floor to Xing Shen and James. Over to you. Thanks, you. Uh, for our presentation, we are going to divide into two uh, parts. Uh, please, next one. Yeah, so for me, I'm going to focus on the impact analysis. So means uh, impact analysis means we are not going to take into account a policy response. So in this way, we can isolate it, the, the impact uh, from the policy response that can mitigate uh, this kind of impact. Also, the analysis uh, is based on the world prices as a peak. So like you all said, so recently some price start to fall. However, most of the uh, important prices are still remain at a high. For example, fertilizer still is at a level 50% above uh, last year uh, June. So basically we model the increase of prices in the period between June 2021 and April 2022. So the chart basically show the major commodities we are going to uh, consider in our analysis as a shock to the whole system. So the blue part of the bar actually is the price before the increase in price before the war. The right part actually is the, uh, mainly due to the war. And the diamond dot basically tell us where the price is uh, now 
So you can see still, most of them still remain high. So we have done, like you say, we have done the country level analysis for 19 countries. So the analysis is done by using EPRIS RENAPRE model. RENAPRE model is an economy-wide model that capture the entire egg food system and the even broader economy. More importantly, this impact from economy-wide impact from products, from sector, from income, from employment, will actually track to the household level. So we have a micro simulation uh, module embodied in the economy-wide model. So uh, in next slides, uh, I'm going to focus on the impact at the household level. So we'll highlight the economy-wide egg food system impact only uh, later uh, in the summary. So this slide gave us three indicators we use to, to assess the impact at the household level. They are poverty, hunger, and the diet. So we put all 19 countries in this slide. It looks very dense, but advantage for, for putting all of the country together is immediately we see the impact varied across countries. There's no like a single important impact actually for all the countries. That's the first things we can say. Moreover, for the impact, we further decompose into three major prices. Food prices, which represent by the red color, fertilizer blue, fuel prices gray. Three together gave us the lines of a percentage point the church. Uh, we also report the absolute number of people who are affected uh, by crisis. So the second thing we can see, not only there's a variation cross country, but also in terms of variation of different shocks and the driver of the church. So for some countries, uh, food prices play more important role for some country, uh, maybe fertilizer play more important role. Bearing this variation heterogeneity in mind, we see two common trends. First thing is among these 19 countries, all countries are negative affected. There are countries they are uh, actually uh, uh, fertilizer exporter like Egypt, but still they are negative effect. Another thing we can say is from left to right, the impact of the food prices start to increase. Means food prices become more important for diet quality and the fuel prices become less impact. Next slide. So like I said, we also consider the impact on agri-food system. We don't have time to talk about it our country, uh, three country people will dive into this issue. And also from this three pie chart, we see what I emphasize and fertilizer prices play important role for poverty, hunger, while food price plays most important role for diet quality declaration. Uh, uh, you already mentioned we have 19 countries policy brief here we put uh, put the link there. Next, uh, 
James is going to talk about policy impact, policy analysis. Thanks, Jinchen. So um, the next, as we now we're going to transition to looking at the effectiveness of different policy responses in offsetting or um, reducing the size of those impacts that Chinchen has just just presented. We look at five broad policy options or intervention areas. The first one we call food tax relief. And in this scenario, we eliminate any import tariffs, VAT or other taxes that are on um, the main affected food products. So that's wheat and wheat flour, oil seeds and edible oils. In some countries where those taxes are already quite small or some of these food products already zero rated, we um, end up subsidizing the consumption of these affected foods. In the second scenario, we look at fertilizer subsidies. And again, we're going to eliminate any taxes on imported or domestic um, fertilizers. Um, but in many cases, we find ourselves increasing the size of an existing subsidy that exists on fertilizer. And the goal here is to offset the effects of rising fertilizer costs that may cause fertilizer use and crop productivity to decline. The third scenario are interventions aimed at improving fertilizer use efficiency on the farm, such as by providing farmers with improved farm advisory services. The goal here is to reduce fertilizer wastage on the farm so that farmers can minimize any decline in production that might be caused by rising fertilizer costs or the a declining quantity of fertilizer being used. The fourth intervention is about improving efficiency in fertilizer supply chains beyond the farm. And here we're talking about supporting domestic fertilizer producers to the extent that that's possible, but also providing support to midstream traders so that they can lower their transaction costs and reduce the price of fertilizers in local markets. And then finally, the fifth intervention is cash transfers. These are paid directly to poor rural and urban households. And the goal of this intervention is to smooth the consumption losses that are caused by the rising world prices. So those are our five policy interventions. Um, the way in which we model them is fairly straightforward. We've heard from Shenzhen what the impacts are of those rising world prices. What we then do is overlay on top of those impacts the, each of these five different interventions, one after the other. To make them comparable, we need to allocate the same amount of resources to each of these five areas. And so we end up allocating or investing 1% of government revenues in each of the five different areas so we can compare them. And we measure as a result, to what extent do those interventions reduce the size of those impacts that Shenzhen presented, right? What is the share of the impacts that are avoided? Quick note on sequencing. Um, uh, the impact analysis that Shenzhen presented is really short-term and focused, think 2022, whereas for the policy analysis, we take a slightly longer time frame, think three years, 2024. That's important because some interventions are slow to roll out, such as improvements in fertilizer use efficiency, and so we need to give time for that investment to pay off, whereas other interventions have more immediate effects, such as cash transfers and subsidies, but they require continuous spending for those benefits to persist. So to treat them equally, we have to give ourselves a bit of time for the evaluation. So now we can talk about the results, and I should be the first person to say this is the kind of slide that I absolutely hate, because there is way too many numbers for us to possibly look at each and every one. But the good news is that um, once we understand what the tables are showing us, we can just basically focus on the colors or the shading um, of the table. So let me help you interpret the table. The table's broken down into three parts, uh, blue, red, and gray. And that corresponds to the three different outcomes that we're focusing on, poverty, hunger, and diet deprivation. 
and the percentages for each country in the table, this is the share of the impacts that are avoided as a result of the 1% investment uh, revenue investment in each of these five different areas. So in a 1% investment in cash transfers in Bangladesh re reduces the impact on poverty by about 10%. Simply put, the bigger the percentage, the better the outcome. And so these are the outcomes that we give the darkest shading to. So now we can step back and look at the different outcomes. And we can see for poverty, for example, we can see that cash transfers turn out to be the most cost-effective of options in almost every single country. And that's partly by design. Our cash transfers specifically target the poor, and therefore it's not surprising then that they are amongst the more efficient options for addressing the increase in poverty caused by the rising world prices. However, when we turn to hunger, we find that cash transfers are relatively less effective, still effective, but relatively less so. And that's because it's more of a blunt instrument at addressing the underlying cause of the increase in hunger, which is a decline in food supply. Fertilizer interventions, on the other hand, do directly address one of the main causes of the decline in food supply, which is a decline in fertilizer use and lost productivity in, in, the growing, in the current growing season. And so it turns out to be, these fertilizer interventions turn out to be more, more effective, relatively so, um, than they were for poverty. Finally, for diet deprivation, this outcome, this negative impact is mainly caused by rising prices for um, edible oils, which are a key component of the added fats um, food group that sits within the Eat Lancet healthy diet. And so cash transfers, for example, is even further removed from addressing that driver of diet uh, of, of this outcome, whereas food tax relief directly addresses the price of those um, most affected products. And so it turns out to be relatively more effective alongside with fertilizer um, interventions. So just to summarize. Um, there's a lot of information and more detailed slides will be made available on the websites that Shinshen flagged. Um, but what we are seeing across countries is that all policy options are effective, at least to some degree, in offsetting the poverty and food security impacts. But what we can definitely see is that there is no single policy that is the most cost effective in addressing all, all, all three outcomes that we have looked at. And even when we look at a specific outcome, it's often that there is no single policy across countries that is the most effective. And that tells us that the, that the most appropriate set of priorities is going to be very country specific. And that's one of the reasons why we want to dig more deeply into the three countries that are the focus for today's session. If we were to stretch and say, what is a generalization that we can see across countries, we would say that our results are suggesting that cash transfers, fertilizer use efficiency and investments in fertilizer supply chains are generally more effective than say in uh, food and fertilizer subsidies. Those cash transfers like subsidies, they generate immediate effects um, and they're relatively large, um, but they are temporary. They exist only so long as the level of investment continues. Whereas investments to improve fertilizer efficiency may take longer to implement, but they may have lasting benefits and possibly also build greater resilience in the, in the food system over the long term. So while I've said we need to be country specific in the recommendations and, and, uh, and our results are showing that, I think one general lesson that comes out um, is that we need to have or we need to recommend that, that governments and donors have a fairly balanced portfolio of policy responses. It needs to combine a combination of interventions that together can address all three poverty and food security outcome indicators that we've looked at. And there needs to be a combination of policies that address the immediate adverse effects of the crisis, but also have longer lasting investments that lay the foundation for greater resilience over time. 
Let me end with caveats because there are always lots of caveats when it comes to modeling exercises and that's no less, not, that's certainly true here. We've looked at very broad policy options and we need to have uh, far more country specificity in the analysis. And this is something we're working towards together with the partners who are about to spe uh, speak later in this session. The last thing I should say is about compounding crises. We know that Ukraine is one source of stress in the global food system and for developing countries, but there are other events going on as well. The drought in the Horn of Africa, the lingering effects of COVID-19, as Yo said, and also the pending macroeconomic crises that some countries are facing around um, uh, debt and the repayment of debt and so on. We haven't looked at these yet, but we do recognize them as being important stresses for many countries, and they will be part of our analysis going forward. Thanks very much. Charlotte? Thank you so much, uh, James and Shinshen, for that overview of both the impact analysis as well as the uh, investigation of which policies might be relatively more effective at reducing the impact. Uh, I'm sure we're going to have a lot of questions, and we will be moving at the end of the, the presentations to a Q&A session. So please, uh, our audience, be sure to submit your questions. Um, you can submit your questions um, on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. We're now moving, as James indicated, to a sort of a deeper dive on three specific countries. Um, and we're kicking off with Nigeria, um, where we will have a colleague from IFPRI, Bedru Balani, um, do the introduction, um, presenting some of the results that have come out of this work, and then in turn introducing um, a speaker from the policymaking community as well as a private sector representative to speak. Before I hand over to you, Bedru, um, I just also want to mention that this work was done in um, collaboration with two uh, one CGIR research initiatives, the uh, one on foresight and modeling and um, one on national policies and strategies. And of course, all of the IFRI country offices as IFRI uh, DG uh, Yost Winnen has indicated were also very much uh, involved in this work. So let's uh, uh, have you kick us off for Nigeria, Pedro. Thank you very much, Charlotte. So just for the benefit of our external orders, let me briefly say on what the country of specifically the IFRI Nigeria is doing in Nigeria. So IFRI Nigeria has been in the country for about 15 years, supporting the agri-food policies and the strategies by undertaking three major activities. First, generating policy evidence through rigorous research, like some of which we presented today. And then we also do strengthening institutional capacity, including government ministries and the research institutes in the country. And we thirdly, we support policy implementation through partnership and uh, engagement with stakeholders. In the right hand of the slide here, you see the kind of partners we are working, for example, the Federal Ministry of Agriculture and the Rural Development in Nigeria is our primary partner. And of course, we work with the National Bureau of Statistics on analysis and the data. 
We have a network of uh, agri-policy research network, which is a think tank in Nigeria, including professors, researchers, and, and, and other, other scholars. And our engagement with stakeholders in Nigeria is very large set of organizations, including the agricultural ministry at the federal and the state levels. We have universities and we have also other research councils locally in Nigeria. And of course, the USID is our major donor for most of the activities we do in Nigeria. And we have other uh, donor organizations like the World Bank and then the others. So, Having said that, let me come back to this, the left-hand side of the slide where Shinshan and uh, James earlier presented the broad 19 country aspect. And here we have the main findings from that modeling exercise for Nigeria. So we look at the, the three big shocks, which are three price shocks is the price of food, fuel and the fertilizer. And the impact area for Nigeria we are presenting here is again the food security and the nutrition and the poverty and, and, and also the GDP. And the numbers are here, you can see, for example, the food price shock is the largest impact on food security in Nigeria for about 2.4 million people in Nigeria went down to the undernourished population group. So, but uh, uh, just to go to the last point, which is, uh, the long-term system resilience building in Nigeria is, I think, the most important one. Just as James mentioned at the end of his presentation, we have four points here. One is to correct the structural imbalance in agricultural system in Nigeria, and then to think really technology and innovation in agriculture, which is a very good point in Nigeria. Now we uh, launched a new national agricultural policy just the last week in Nigeria. And as most of you know, the insecurity and the conflict is also affecting Nigeria, food and agri-system resilience, and also the climate climate issues. So, so I, I end the, the brief presentation here. Now, let me introduce our two speakers, one from the government and one from the private sector. So from the government, we have here in the panel, Mrs. Shugra Mohammed who is a senior staff member of the Federal Ministry of Agriculture and Rural Development in Nigeria. And currently she is the deputy director of the Federal Department of Agriculture. She is uh, the head of the Irrigation Agriculture and the Crop Development Department within the ministry. And she actually oversees the ministry's goal on promoting micro and small scale irrigation and agro-cottage industry development. So over to you, Ms. Shugra. You have five minutes. Um, thank you very much, Bedro. Um, next slide, please. Okay, um, we've heard, we've seen what uh, IFPRI presented and uh, Nigeria has been impacted by the Russian-Ukraine conflict uh, because uh, we are a net importer of food and um, one of the things we import the most that has the highest um, um, bill is actually wheat. And uh, we import, we are the largest importer apart from Egypt, uh, we're the fourth largest importer apart from Egypt, China, and Turkey. And uh, Russia is our second source after US. And um, the impact of the Russian-Ukraine war has um, actually compounded with the after effects of COVID-19 to make uh, food inflation sustained for, for a very long period. We've seen an increase 
from 15.6% in January 2022 uh, to 19.6 in July 2022. And then the rise in energy, um, energy prices has also affected virtually everything, making um, our, our food security very fragile indeed. You've seen the numbers presented by Bedro. Increasing supply and logistics risk has, has um, uh, like I said, affected our food uh, uh, food prices, maintaining the inflation at a very high price, high high rate, and that has pushed so many people into poverty, um, undernourished population, and so on and so forth. Next slide, please. Now, as a policy response, um, um, and also like um, um, I think the other presenter said, some will take time to roll out, but some are immediate. One of the um, policy response from to, to reduce the, the, the food inflation and also the insecurity, food insecurity is the National Emergency Food Security Intervention, which seeks to utilize um, ICT to deliver inputs to uh, smallholder farmers that those are, that are in the lowest quantile of, um, of the um, wealth quantile and also those in the rural areas. We're looking to give them support in terms of fertilizer, seeds, and, and agrochemicals. And we're gonna use um, a system uh, of accredited um, agro-dealers nationwide to deliver these inputs to the farmers. So uh, one of the policy responses is on the fertilizer, seeds, and other inputs. Now, the release of grains to, 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 to um, address the food insecurity among the, those that are most deprived in the rural areas. Our government has been releasing since COVID started. We've released over 150 uh, uh, metric tons of food, of assorted different kinds of food to, to, to very, very poor households and marginalized groups to reduce the impact of uh, COVID and as well as this uh, war that we're seeing now. Um, one of them was recently done, about 40,000 metric tons was, was released. And we have also released about five metric, uh, five, 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 5,000 metric tons to um, Poultry Association of Nigeria to assist them with uh, getting feed because that has become a very sore point and uh, a source of um, pressure on our, on our food security. Then the review of fertilizer blending guidelines and import, because we import two out of the three ingredients we blend fertilizer with, uh, muriate of potash and ammonium phosphate uh, from um, Morocco and, um, uh, and the Russian axis. Now, the, the policy response is for us to review. We reviewed our fertilizer blending guidelines and import advice to ask those that are importing to look at other sources like Canada. And uh, we've gone into discussion as well with the, with the country to make sure that this goes on smoothly. And um, we have also discussed with the, luckily for us, we have um, investments by private sector in the fertilizer uh, subsector that has given us capacity to produce. And you'll be hearing from one of them this, this afternoon. So we have ammonia in the country because we're oil producing nation. So we have that in the country, but the other two are where we have the pressure and we have um, serious interventions there from the private sector that has given us some sort of um, a cushion 
the effect of the of the war. Now, provision of soft loans to the farmers. We have um, see, uh, several development finance windows that uh, we've been intervening since COVID or even before COVID to make sure that our food security is assured, and uh, that has continued as a as a kind of response to this. Uh, what is going on? Um, from the uh, external shocks that we're suffering. So we have farmer money where we are targeting a lot of farmers with um, um, monies that they can, and without interest, without collateral, they can they can apply and get it and uh, so that they can be able to get their inputs and so on and so forth. We also Sorry, have- Sugar, could you just wrap up? Thanks so much. Okay. Okay, launch of the agricultural um, technology and innovation policy has uh, was was done last week. That is also looking at technology, knowledge, and um, um, extension as well as funding. Thank you very much. Th thank you very much, Ms. Shugra. So our next speaker from Nigeria is from the private sector. I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Surenda Srivastava, who is a marketing professional with 27 years of experience in business development and product management in agri-food systems, mainly in agricultural inputs such as fertilizer, seeds, and chemicals. Currently, he's working with the Indorama fertilizer and chemical companies. This is uh, one of the largest uh, fertilizer manufacturer in Nigeria. And he is head of the sales and marketing uh, for the domestic fertilizer business in Nigeria. Over to you, Dr. Silvastava. Hi, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, so uh, uh, let's uh, see, we have discussed a lot of things. Uh, about the Nigeria, but uh, I would like to concentrate my talk, my presentation only on the fertilizer affordability and the availability, because these two things are very important to make a nation's uh, food secure. So uh, see, the Russia and the Ukraine war crisis have impacted a lot. I think every country have impacted, but these two countries are very, very important. Russia and Ukraine both are important for Nigeria. Uh, the two, two things, one, uh, Russia is very uh, good exporter of uh, fertilizer, particularly the urea and uh, abope. And uh, the Belarus and the uh, Russia is very important for the risk for the MOP fertilizer. And uh, this Ukraine, this uh, I think my earlier speaker they they, they inform us that uh, uh, Ukraine is supplier of uh, this. They export wheat. They support corn. They also support the uh, sunflower, but wheat is more important for the Nigeria. So the, both the crisis impacted uh, uh, at a greatest extent uh, in terms of rising the price, prices of the fertilizer, prices of the food, prices of the uh, input. It's not only the fertilizer, but all input have impacted. So energy have impacted a lot of product, petroleum products. That you see the uh, Nigeria, Nigeria import, uh, export the crude oil, but import a lot of petroleum products. So that impact we have seen, we have recently concluded this season, this wet season recently concluded, and we, we clearly observe this impact is, is at a very great extent. The, uh, how it is impacted, just I wanted to elaborate it. Uh, as far as the fertilizer availability is concerned, there are two things. Nigeria consume urea and the blended fertilizer NPK. Because of this, uh, uh, crisis of DAP uh, and the other two ingredients, DAP and potassium, 
uh, import was not possible. And when it was imported, it was too late. So the one is the uh, NPK was un, uh, not available earlier state. And when it is imported, but at a very low, at very high cost, the cost which is not at all affordable. Similarly, for the urea, urea cost is also high because interestingly, we know the urea prices is, is one, at one point of time, it was touching about $1,000 uh, per metric ton. So availability is one thing and affordability. Because of all these things, the farmers are not able to afford this high cost of fertilizer. One bag of the urea is costing currently, it is for the 200, 22,000 Naira per bag, that is local currency. And similarly for the NPK, blended NPK 2010 and 2015, that also cost is very high. So it's the, uh, this both, uh, and, and both uh, the input means urea and NPK have a law, a very uh, great contribution in the raising the uh, yield. So overall, the consumption of fertilizer in Niger is going to reduce at least with 40%, 30 to 40%, uh, the, the overall consumption of fertilizer is going to impact. Earlier, the last year, the consumption of fertilizer was about 2.2 million. But this year, we are, we are expecting about, it, it will hardly cross 1 million, both urea and NPK. So ultimately, and this will impact on the food production as well as the uh, the food insecurity in the country. And uh, just just for the example, the farmers are not able to afford these uh, fertilizers. So that's why the main cereal crops, which is grown in Nigeria, like the corn, like uh, paddy, like the uh, millet, uh, sorghum, and all, they are diverting. And these crops needs uh, 80, 90 percent of the uh, nitrogenous fertilizers. Means the they they will not give the proper yield if the fertilizer are not applied properly. So farmers are converting. They are converting their uh, these cereals crops from uh, from uh, maize, rice to soybean, groundnut, cowpea, sesame, where the fertilizer consumption is less. So overall, this uh, Russia and Ukraine crisis uh, is going to impact at a very great extent in the Nigeria in overall uh, food grain production and definitely their food prices. I think there are a lot of uh, remedial aspect has been discussed in our previous slide. As from the, our, uh, uh, as, a, uh, as a corporate, we are trying to educate more, far, more uh, farmers to use the fertilizer appropriately uh, and use the, like, I think we are talking about the fertilizer use efficiency. That's why we, as Indorama, we, we have launched a neem coated urea fertilizer that gives a more efficient fertilizer way of, uh, that's using the efficiency of the fertilizers. So that will also, also help. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Surendra. And, and uh, sorry, I think we're losing you. We're, you're breaking up Almost, a little bit. But it is not at a certain uh, extent, but they... Uh, yeah, Surendra, I... we're... We're no longer hearing you, but your time is also up. But but thank you so much for that really good overview of um, of what's happening on the fertilizer side. And thanks to all the panelists um, who just addressed the situation in Nigeria. We're now moving on to Egypt, and it's my pleasure to turn over to Mariam Ralph, who's a senior research associate at IFRI. Over to you, Mariam. Uh, thank you, Charlotte, and hi everyone. Um, Egypt country office has been established since um, uh, like six years ago, and we have established very strong partnerships with many country partners like the Ministry of Planning and Economic Development, Ministry of Agriculture, the CAPAS, and 
and the Institute of National Planning. We have supported our partners with um, uh, like uh, uh, modeling scenarios and uh, evidence and policy support. And we have also uh, many stakeholders um, like we have um, many relations with our donors, like SID, World Bank, uh, the Cairo University, European Union, FAO, and we have good relations also with the private sector, like the Federation of Egyptian uh, Industries, like the specifically the Food Industries uh, Chamber. Moving to the results of um, our um, modeling work on the impact of Ukraine war um, on Egypt. Uh, we've also consulted our country partners and uh, discussed the assumptions with the experts, the assumptions for the model, and uh, listened also to their feedback on the model. For the modeling results, we can see that the food price shock represents the largest impact on uh, poverty and food security in uh, in Egypt, as uh, Egypt is, as you all know, that, that it's it's, um, it's the largest wheat importer, and it um, it is known of uh, its high food import uh, dependence. Food price uh, inflation has reached record uh, 20% high in, in, in this year, and the whole agri-food system was adversely affected by the uh, world price shocks. And as food accounts for a very large share of the household uh, consumption, um, the food price shocks affect all households, and it has reduced the real expenditure of the lower income uh, households. This has uh, increased the nationally uh, the national poverty headcount rate by around 1.8 percentage, uh, making around uh, making more um, additional 1.8 million uh, poor uh, people. And also, uh, wheat and bread represent a major source for the calories, especially for the poorer households. And the rising um, uh, food prices are also the most important factor for worsening uh, the diet quality. This has caused um, like 18% uh, of people to become uh, deprived, like two more, uh, like 2.2 million people that uh, ha have become undernourished. Uh, the fertilizer price shocks also has caused uh, several disruption, especially in the national agri-food uh, system, um, because uh, the rising fertilizer prices can cause, like uh, some farmers can reduce the use of this input, and this can lead to lower agricultural uh, production and higher prices for uh, also many other uh, local grown crops. Um, there are many challenges that can affect the agri-food system in Egypt, like, for example, as we mentioned, the high food imports dependence. Also, the government um, offers a, a very large uh, share of the budget towards the, uh, the food subsidies. Um, the higher um, fertilizer and fuel prices, um, uh, both of them, and because they are used as inputs, they can affect the agricultural production and the, the irrigated uh, system in Egypt. And um, the way forward in our study, because the government has uh, intervened with many policy measures, we would like to assess the um, uh, government policy options uh, that were implemented to mitigate impacts on uh, households, especially the uh, rural uh, people. Uh, I, it's also my pleasure to introduce uh, um, two panelists for for for, uh, for Egypt. The first one is uh, Dr. Fadi Abderradi, who will focus more on the government uh, policy response. Uh, 
Dr. Fadi is an associate professor at Cairo University and also the Institute of uh, National uh, Planning. Over to you, Fadi. Thank you, Mariam, very much. Uh, next slide, please. So here I would like to give you an overview about the fertilizer market in Egypt uh, with some statistics. So the, in terms of production, we have 6 million tons of nitrogen fertilizers, where half of them uh, is being exported, while uh, phosphate fertilizers, we produce like 2 million tons and uh, a quarter of it is being exported. Uh, and and the, um, the exports uh, orientation, uh, of course, impacts uh, on the market fundamentals so it, it has uh, its own effects on the uh, causing spikes in the fertilizer market prices in the last two years. Um, in response to that uh, the government has taken some measures and have their own uh, policy options that are being discussed nowadays. Some of those are using pharma cards so linking the, um, the fertilizer uh, subsidized fertilizers to the farmers uh, where a farmer could receive like two bags of urea or three bags of uh, nitrate or nitrate, depending on the, the type of nitrogen fertilizer to be received by the farmers. Yet the farmers um, would, since they are more interested in a, um, in a fertilizer that uh, benefits them more, they get the ones that uh, stays in the, technically stays in the soil for longer periods, so it impacts their productivity. The second type of measures that they use is more a more control on the procurement mechanism of wheat, especially so farmers who receive subsidized fertilizers, they should uh, uh, show some kind of um, uh, receipts to the uh, silos where they uh, deliver the quantities that the government has uh, announced with a minimum of uh, 12 adapts, for example, which is a local uh, weighting uh, unit. Um, and in, in this case, the government as well is imposing or uh, committing the, um, the fertilizer companies to sell their shares in the local market to make it more stable and to avoid these spikes. So they are asking, for example, the, um, the, uh, the fertilizer companies to commit to the 55% of their production to be sold uh, for the subsidized uh, fertilizers and an additional 10%, for example, for the uh, to be sold of their production to be sold uh, in the free market. Uh, one last uh, policy option that's being discussed nowadays is the freeing of the fertilizer market or, uh, of the subsidy of, of the subsidized quantities and uh, make it like cash transfers to overcome the inefficiencies resulting from the existing system. And as was presented in the uh, by James, that the cash transfers are more efficient than the uh, other systems. So thank you very much and over to you, Mariam. Uh, thank you, Fadi. Uh, let me now uh, introduce uh, Mr. Mahmoud uh, Elbasuni, um, who is an ex executive director at the Food Industry Chamber in the Federation of Egyptian Industries. And he will give us like the uh, perspective of, of the private sector on the uh, implications of the Ukraine war in Egypt. Over to you, Mr. Mahmoud. Mahmoud, are you online? Are you able to join us? 
I believe he's been disconnected. All right. Uh, apologies for that. Um, thanks. Thanks very much, uh, Mariam and, and Fadi, for your presentations on Egypt. Um, why don't we move on um, to Kenya? And before we do, let me remind our audience to please, uh, questions are already coming in, but feel free to send in some additional questions. You can do that on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. So our last country that we'll be taking a closer look at is Kenya. And I'm turning over to Lenza Amune, who's a research officer in our um, office in Kenya. Thanks so much, Lenza. You're on mute. Thank you so much, uh, Charlotte, and hi, everyone. Um, for for, for uh, Kenya country case, uh, I'll narrow down to the study. And for this particular study, uh, Kenya, we partnered with so many local institutions. Amongst them is Kenya Institute of Public Policy Research and Analysis, KIPRA. We had also Ministry of Agriculture. We had Kenya National Bureau of Statistics. Uh, we had also CALDRO, among other institutions. But uh, for this uh, study, the stakeholder engagement in, involved um, the community of policy practice workshop that we had a discussion on the assumptions and the scenario for the study. We also had uh, policy consultations with the Minister of Agriculture, particularly on fertilizer policies. We also did some uh, public dissemination seminar jointly with Kipra. So uh, uh, let me go to the, he the headline results on the left panel. Uh, for this particular study, we find that uh, fertilizer price shock has the largest impact on poverty and food security and also disrupts agri-food agri system. Now, for instance, uh, for um, uh, the fertilizer price shock, the poor population increased by 680,000 individuals. Uh, we also know that um, uh, given the impact, uh, there is worsening of uh, diets and thereby increasing the undernourished population by 550,000. Uh, going by, um, the results, uh, we find that the agri-food system GDP drops by 230 million US dollars, not to mention, uh, but a few. Uh, we also realized that food price shock also has uh, a large impact on food security as poor population uh, increase uh, by 450,000 um, individual. Now, onto the introduction. Allow me to introduce uh, uh, Kenya's representative. I'll start with the government representative, Mr. Peter Woko, who is a public servant with over 28 years of experience in various capacity within government. He is currently the head of policy coordination and acting director at Agriculture Policy Research and Regulations Division at the State Department for Crop and Development uh, Research within the Ministry of Agriculture. Now, currently, uh, Peter, Mr. Peter is involved in policy review, uh, research and development, and also active, actively participate in legal reforms, or particular in development of uh, legal drafting instructions. Uh, back to, uh, over to you, Mr. Peter Woko. Thank you, thank you very much, Lensa. And uh, good morning, good evening, everybody. Next slide, please. As a background, uh, generally we didn't have a very good performance in the year 2021, but as early as uh, March this year, food prices, uh, prices for food commodities started rising uh, rapidly and uh, maize and wheat stocks, uh, came, uh, stocks became very low to the extent that uh, we were not able to uh, address 
the normal requirement. Usually underperformance is met by importation from around the region. And the arrangement in the East African community allows easy movement of food commodities, particularly uh, the staple food commodity where maize is key to Kenya from the neighboring countries. But this case, this time, the supplies became a little bit low. Therefore, imports had to come from as far as uh, other commercial country, uh, including Zambia and as far as uh, Malawi. This all uh, made sure that the prices of food remained high, which is not normal at such times of the year because it's surely just immediately after the harvest. In that case, there had to be a government intervention in order to uh, make sure that food is still uh, accessible. Now, the key interventions which were put in place included the food tax uh, relief, where duty on free imports, particularly for yellow maize. Yellow maize was targeted so that uh, more yellow maize could be brought in to release white maize, which is usually used for human consumption, so that we can use more yellow maize to produce a livestock feed. And because of the high prices of white maize, the prices for food, uh, for feed, livestock feed was also largely high, affecting prices of key commodities like eggs, milk, and even poultry. So for white maize, there's an arrangement to reduce duty, particularly targeting 540,000 metric tons so that we can have more supplies into the country and further suspension of other tariffs to enhance inflows largely from the East African community and commercial region. Then finally, because of the sustained high prices, there was an effort to subsidize the flour, which is a major food commodity, largely to enhance access of food commodity by urban dwellers. You realize that the, the population living in the rural area may have alternative food, uh, food items like cassava, sweet potato, which is not largely available in the urban region. Fertilizer prices also increased a little bit too high beyond the reach of most farmers. Actually, it increased by over 120%. And this affected uh, planting activities, which normally take place around March, February every year. Therefore, the government had to subsidize fertilizer. And the most feasible way of doing it at that time was to bring in fertilizer and distribute it so that farmers can get it at uh, almost half uh, the price. Uh, also uh, supported in terms of fertilizer for the main commodities like tea, coffee, the subsectors were allowed to import so that they can easily facilitate access by farmers at slightly lower prices than what the market price would be. For areas where there was a lot of uh, low, uh, poor food supply, cash transfers was also uh, provided, but for areas with poor food supply, particularly the ASAL areas of about 28 million people, physical food supply became necessary because even if you transferred cash, they wouldn't have anything to, to buy. Now, the next slide, subsidized uh, petroleum also was necessary because of the high prices of petroleum, and this would affect uh, prices of everything because of transportation. You realize that the high prices of petroleum also affected uh, inflows the price at which commodities were landing into the country was doubled because of uh, high prices of transportation. Now, the long-term interventions include increased incomes for small-scale farmers so that uh, you can have a system where the small-scale farmers can sustainably continuously produce, uh, increase output production and value addition, establish uh, about 60% uh, of our production is from small-scale producers, but this time we want to enhance large-scale production so that we can increase production. Through uh, establishing uh, 
large-scale farms leasing out of government land, then also um, promoting irrigation. But also there's arrangement for boosting food resilience through restructuring food reserve system, which is more sustainable, handling more sustainably, and also boosting a food resilience of about 1.3 million farming and pastoral households in the Assal region through uh, driven interventions which would then uh, uh, maintain sustainable production. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead, Mario. This is Lensa. Oh, sorry, Lensa. I'm I, yes. I got a bit lost there. So, um, are we? Uh, we're we're wrapping up now for Kenya, correct? Yes, we are in the second uh, uh, representative uh, from private sector, Mr. Anthony Kiyoko, who is an agribusiness expert with a private sector experience spanning over twenty years. Most of it is gained while working with the rural-based communities of smallholder farmers in East Africa. He also has a vast experience in managing public uh, private uh, sector engagement initiatives and also currently Anthony serves as the chief executive officer of the Serial Growers Association in Kenya. Uh, Anthony serves on several boards, is a council member of agriculture sector network and also a member of several agriculture sector technical uh, working groups. Uh, over to you, uh, Mr. Anthony. Oh, thank you, Lenza. I glad to be here and let me start by making my comments and make two quick observations. The first one is that uh, the Ukraine crisis really just made our bad situation worse. We would all be aware that a COVID-19 pandemic had been happening for a while and the prices of fertilizer and fuel had been going up. And so when this uh, crisis happened, the, the Russia-Ukraine crisis, uh, it uh, coincided with the main planting season, which was another shock because it happened in February. The main planting season is uh, in March to May. And therefore, there was no much time for farmers to make adjustments or to uh, make changes to their plants. And then the other thing that I would also mention is that there has been uh, varied responses, but uh, I'll just focus on a few. The, impact that we've had in agriculture in Kenya. Number one is that there's been a massive um, you know, reduction in uh, some acreage, especially for some crops. There's also been suboptimal fertilizer application. As you would expect, uh, farmers would uh, try to use different fertilizers. Some see some reduced productivity incomes as well as loss of uh, uh, farm labor. There's also been a shift to uh, cheaper fertilizer options. Uh, there has been local blends that farmers sometimes go for or have attempted to go for. There has also been used, especially for the small scale farmers to use organic manure. Other impact has been on reduced food supply, like uh, my colleague and friend uh, Peter has mentioned. And so there's been an increase in cost of production and the, no, uh, no, the increase in the animal feeds. I think Peter has ably talked about that. And the other thing that uh, we may consider to be impact is compromised food and nutrition security for obvious reasons, cost as well as availability. 
and something that's also not uh, common, but we have seen is a shift to establishment of pasture fields as well as the growing of traditional uh, food crops. Now, one a positive aspect that one may want to mention is that for Kenya, for, uh, for local farmers, the prices have improved and therefore, um, whereas that may look like a good thing and a gain for the farming community, that has been more than uh, offset by the increase in the cost of fertilizer and fuel, which has meant an increased cost of production. Uh, Peter has also mentioned about the uh, government fertilizer subsidy, but generally the feeling has been that uh, this came a bit too late and it was too little, came in July when uh, most of the crop had been planted and the distribution and access was noted to be inconsistent. Next slide. So uh, looking into the future, one of the things that this uh, pandemic, including the, the, the crisis now that we are in has taught us and challenged us as players in the Kenyan agri-food system is to work towards self-sufficiency uh, to the greatest extent possible. And uh, the belief of ESLI is that this is not going to be the last time we are going to have supply uh, shocks. And therefore, various actors in the private sector have taken different measures. Uh, from the farmers, there has been an attempt to go for diversification, looking at uh, different farming practices, including adoption of regenerative agriculture practices, which is basically a way of managing the risk associated with the future risks. And then the fertilizer companies have gone ahead to uh, invest in local blending capacity. And processors are looking at diversified uh, source of markets, including coming up with new products that those would be my quick comments. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Anthony, and all of you in, in this uh, discussion about what is happening in Kenya. Um, we're now going to turn to some questions um, and I'm, I'm pleased we, we have a, a bit of time here. So keep the questions coming. I'm gonna start um, asking for a very short response from our three policymakers um, that have uh, been so kind as to join us today. So Sukra, Fadi, and Peter, there's a question here that has more to do, I think, with communication by government to its citizens. Um, the question is, how does the leadership actually explain the challenges that the countries are facing? And uh, are you talking about the impacts of the war? Are there additional impacts? How do you how do you inform your citizens about what's happening, and maybe also then explaining the the correct policy responses that that are required? So, if it's possible to just give a very short answer to that, let's start with Subra, then Body, and then Peter. Um, um, okay, there are normally um, programs on telly and uh, radio that we use to communicate what is going on and uh, policy responses that the government is taking. Um, usually we target the um, traditional means of, um, of seeking information by most of the rural populace, such as radio and also the, those in the urban, such as television. We have very robust um, programs in different uh, 
private and public media houses that we use that to communicate. And then we also use the, the media, you know, the uh, print media to do that as well. And uh, there are also forums that we organize, stakeholder forums that we pass on messages such as um, what is going on and so on and so forth. Thank you. Body and Peter, do you want to jump in on that one too? Yeah, thank you. Our approach is relatively the same. Use of mass media communication uh, forums, uh, uh, commodity-based organizations, and also address to leaderships as ways of communicating the situation. And also you also asked whether it is uh, COVID or uh, Ukraine, those clarities are usually normally brought out, particularly on the on the provided uh, responses. Uh, Charles, yes, uh, similarly, the same is here. So all, all kinds of, of communication. So through mass media, through uh, specialized uh, TV channels, or or directly um, with the with, with the interest parties. So uh, meetings with them, um, and 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 directly contacting with the with either our development agencies or or officials or cultural cooperatives, which are the main uh, contact or. Uh, focal point to, to reach out uh, for the wrong people. Thank you. Great, thanks Thanks for those insights. Um, Surendra um, from Indorama, a question here, I think a really important question. We know of course that Nigeria isn't now a quite important producer um, and exporter of, of um, nitrogenous fertilizers. And the question here is how is the crisis impacting your exports or let's maybe Nigeria in general or Indorama in particular to countries in West Africa, in particular um, Niger. You're on mute. Hi. So uh, for the export to the countries like Niger, which is adjacent to uh, the Nigeria, a lot of lot of material has infiltrated illegally because there is no any legal way to uh, export to these countries. Yeah, uh, currently the Nigeria is trying to uh, to make a framework so that legally the material urea can be uh, uh, exported to the Niger, the Cameroon, all these countries, particularly the Niger because that is a landlocked country. But there's, there are there are a few states which is very close to the uh, Nigeria and the material is moving, but yeah, we are we are trying to uh, liaison with the government and to make a proper framework so that legally the urea can be trans exported to this country. Great, Th thanks, Surendra. Um, again, Nigeria playing a very important role in in that region. Um, James, there's a few questions about modeling here, um, and I think you actually referred to this in, in your presentation. So there's a question from a um, university student in Tehran who's wondering how, how can countries deal with the food crisis also considering the droughts and floods that have occurred? And I think you spoke to this issue of, you know, how can we model multiple shocks uh, um, occurring in countries? And the same question is, is asked by somebody else in a way, what trade-offs are made when countries attempt to mitigate the possible food security due to the current multiple shocks? No, I think it's an excellent question and it's one which worries us a lot. I mean, we don't know 
how long the Ukraine crisis is going to continue and to what extent the um, world markets are going to adapt to this new reality. So what's going to happen or what prices might look like next year is, is very difficult to predict. In the absence of concurrent uh, shocks like droughts and other macroeconomic crises that countries are facing, um, already the balancing between those spending your scarce resources within government resources on short-term measures to deal with um, the food crisis today, but also laying the foundation for investments uh, investments that lay the foundation in long-term resilience for next year and beyond, that trade-off would already be very complicated. I think many countries today are finding that their hands are being forced because they are facing those droughts. Um, and so they're being pushed towards the shorter term, more immediate relief measures. Um, and, and I think that's perfectly understandable. But the concerns for us are that those investments in longer term resilience, so that countries can better cope with the next crisis or the persistence of this Ukraine crisis into next year and beyond, those investments may be very difficult to make in the context of multiple concurrent crises demanding immediate action to Day, and given the budget constraints that governments are facing. And so I can't give a universal answer, um, a, a general answer, but I think what we need to start doing is thinking about this crisis as a po possible persistent problem and how it may lead to some lasting shifts in, uh, in the priorities that governments are allocating their scarce resources towards. Thanks. Great. Thank you, James. Um, and here's a question that I'm going to uh, direct to Anthony Kyoko. Um, it comes from Derek Hetty at IFCRI, who writes that 2008 also saw dire poverty predictions, um, but post-crisis studies found that higher food prices actually reduced poverty. And of course, we know from you know the long period of uh, of complaints about um, subsidies by developed countries driving down international food price, commodity prices, that that hurt uh, farmers in developing countries. So how do we sort of square the circle? What do you believe? Do you think in some cases, perhaps for more competitive farmers, um, they actually might see uh, positive impacts of high food prices? Uh, that's a good observation. What what I did mention in my quick remarks was that, whereas that uh, could be possible, but when you get an increase in commodity prices, but then that comes uh, together with a very sharp increase in the cost of inputs and other uh, factors that drive up the cost of production, then the benefits may not be as much as would otherwise uh, appear on paper at first glance. And therefore, uh, especially when you think of the resource poor farmers, the smaller farmers, or the majority, the, the improvement in their performance or in their incomes may not be as much. But probably there is some uh, truth in the fact that some of the larger, more efficient uh, you know, growers may benefit. But again, you may also want to look at it in terms of what it means the long term. I think uh, James has just mentioned that it's difficult to see where this is heading. And therefore, even for farmers who might want to increase their investments in certain crops that are mostly impacted by the crisis, may not know whether to go ahead or not because they do not know for how long this is going to last. So a possible you know, scenario, but then again, given the cost of production coupled with uncertainty about where we are heading with it and how long it's going to last, it's not so quite certain. Uh, 
Thank you. Thank, thanks, uh, Anthony. Um, Shinshen, there's a question from an anonymous um, uh, questioner who's raising a very important point. Um, it would be good to capture the efficiency, sustainability, and gender dimensions of the proposed policy options as well. How could these be captured? And maybe after you answer that question, if any of our um, country uh, IFRI colleagues would like to speak to that question as well in terms of how much have uh, sustainability and gender dimensions been discussed in, in, in the three countries? Over to you, Shinshen. Yes, yeah, this is a very good question. So each time when we present economic-wide uh, impact, so this gender issue always comes to us. So actually we are in the process to develop the gender uh, indicator into RENAPRI model. And currently we, we couldn't really answer this question. So we couldn't answer uh, whether actually there's gender impl implication uh, from uh, uh, the recent shock. James actually knows model better. Maybe James can add it. No, not much more to add beyond what you said, except we know that this is a very important issue. And, um, and you know, while we have some idea of tracking what the impacts are on poverty and um, the undernourished populations, um, certainly with our policy interventions, we've taken a very neutral, gender neutral um, perspective on this. But we know that there may be required some sort of gender intentional interventions to, in order to address particularly vulnerable groups, which women tend to be disproportionately represented in. Thanks. Thanks, thanks very much for, for answering that, that, that question. Um, let, me, um, let me now turn uh, to, uh, well, we have a sort of a, a, an overview question uh, or several questions, and maybe it's best to direct this either to, to you, James, uh, Shinchen, or, or if Yo would like to come in. And I, I think people perhaps got a bit lost in, in the initial slides, but in a nutshell, um, why is this particular crisis having such a huge impact? Yeah, maybe I start first. Um, so it's true. So in the past, we, we did have a, a food price crisis like in 2008. We also had a bunch of uh, uh, food, uh, oil prices shock in the past, and moreover, actually fertilizer price uh, was high, even never be too low for smallholders. That's why many countries, there are fertilizer-related policy implement already. So why this time the shock is such a uh, pounding? I think one reason is all of a sudden, like Anthony said, all of a sudden the three shocks all come to to all of these low-income countries. All of these 19 countries, some of them, they may benefit as the oil exporter, but the oil uh, uh, windfalls, generally speaking, cannot quickly come to uh, their citizens. Some country like uh, Egypt actually is a fertilizer exporter, but in all of these uh, other 17 countries, they are all depend on fertilizer import. Most of them, they depend on fertilizer 100% import. So that's a very, very big uh, issue. Moreover, wheat import is the most important uh, food import for all of these countries, especially African countries. All of a sudden, fertilizer and the wheat price both increase. So farmers may benefit from food price increase, like Anthony said, but cost side actually, actually 
uh, offset any benefit from food prices. So actually, we didn't present uh, the economy-wide impact for, for the growth. Actually, honestly speaking, most of countries, that impact is relatively small. It's not a crisis to the whole country. Actually, it's a crisis to our poor people. So that's what we try to emphasize. So James, turn to you. Yeah, I think I would just want to stress, and it adds to what Anthony was saying, which is that, you know, and it somewhat speaks to Derek's question about, you know, are there not winners when prices are high? I think what we have seen is a very rapid onset of this increase in prices. And I think, you know, given time, those who are net producers of food may find themselves able to respond and adapt and increase production and invest, as Anthony said. But this crisis has been very rapid. And so we haven't had a chance to, you know, we felt the crisis immediately without with very little opportunity to adapt and increase production and respond. Um, it, over time, we may see, if we look back, that there were winners who were able to capitalize on sort of new market opportunities, like we saw after 2008 and the kinds of analyses that our colleague Derek mentioned. But right now, we're in the middle of the crisis, and it's happening very quickly, and we haven't seen many opportunities for, for people to sort of adapt and benefit from this crisis. So it's the rapid onset, the sharp shock that we have seen. Um, and I should emphasize, it's not just the war in Ukraine. As Shenzhen showed, there were increases in prices before the war started because of fertilizer bans that were being in play and put in place in different parts of the world and so on. So what we're seeing is a, is a culmination of shocks that are, um, that are affecting us today. Thanks. Thanks very much. Um, let me ask a question. Um, I believe it was Sugra who mentioned that there was already some changes taking place in terms of the crops that um, farmers are growing in light of this crisis. And, and I surrender may, may have also made the same point in terms of switching to crops that are perhaps less uh, uh, fertilizer intensive. So in let's focus maybe on, on Nigeria. How, how do you think this crisis will impact uh, sort of the food basket uh, in Nigeria, um, because perhaps this crisis has shown that there's some danger in being dependent on, on one or two crops uh, to feed the population, both in terms of imports, but here we're focusing on, on in-country production. Yes. Um, well, we, we luckily for us, we have a lot of um, staples um, depending on the region where you are, you have local staples that are not um, dependent on uh, on imports. In fact, most of them are, we are actually maybe the number one producer in the world, such as yam, most of the roots and tuber crops that are taken as staples virtually across the country. We are the largest producers, cassava, yam, uh, sweet potato, and the rest of them. So we have alternatives to, the, to those food items that are usually in, imported. And in, in addition to that, rice has become a very important and a priority crop for us because of the consumer preference now for rice. But luckily, we've done a number of things over the years that have may have made rice have made Nigeria almost self-sufficient in rice. We have lost that dubious honor of being the largest importer of rice in the in, in the world. So we do have alternatives that are that are working for us, but the cost is what is actually. Um, I think the cost of uh, food items is what is making it very difficult for, or maybe what is making it uh, uh, more difficult for households because right now maybe over 50% of our household income goes to food. 
And that is because of also the logistics risk that we are facing. You know that we produce oil, but we import refined uh, products. And that is where the problem has, um, has been hitting us very, very badly. But we do have alternatives and especially in the rural areas. They can they can they can have uh, you know other food stuff, but there's also another dimension to it, which is a conflict situation we're in, uh, the insecurity that is also um, reducing the agricultural land uh, or production because because of the insecurity, a lot of people that are in the growing areas, production high production areas are unable to go to farm, and that is also putting another layer of pressure on on our own uh, fragile situation as it were but in terms of the um, you know available food we have so many you go to the market everything is there the issue is price thank you thank you Sugar. while you're up on the screen um i, I believe you could also perhaps tell us uh, go back to the gender question because i think nigeria has taken a really strong kind of gender approach to to your government programs. Maybe just in a very short intervention on that would be great. Yeah, actually just before I came here, I was um, at an advocacy on gender at our head of service. We have a, a national gender policy on agriculture already that uh, has taken, we have the um, implementation plan and everything. And we have a, a, um, a steering committee that is that has drawn members from public sector, private sector, uh, non-governmental organizations and so on and so forth. So for us, gender has been mainstreamed into agriculture and we're working with partners that have a very, they are very, very gender conscious and, and sensitive. So every intervention we make, the affirmative action is, is, is right there in it, gender is integrated. But the, but the demand side uh, issues of poverty of women, you know, um, lack of education and so on is what is making it a bit difficult sometimes for women to engage profitably with the with the various interventions that we have but we go out of our way we do do um positive discrimination to make sure that women are are really given a share in whatever we're doing um the response where we're going to give uh inputs and so on and so forth is going to target women especially and young people and also even people with disability that can participate in agricultural um, in, um, um activity. Great, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Sugra. Let me follow up maybe with Mariam and Lenza. Would you like to say anything from the perspective of, um, of, of Egypt and, and Kenya about this question of um, growing alternative crops or substituting perhaps uh, you know, uh, flowers for wheat flour and, and what are the challenges and, and what is happening in, in, those, two, in those two countries? Uh, yes, I um, I can I can start um, for Egypt because Egypt is a very large uh, importer of wheat. Uh, after this uh, Ukraine crisis, uh, the government has uh, offered a new policy uh, to like increase the domestic procurement of wheat and uh, to encourage farmers to uh, cultivate more uh, more wheat in the lands uh, to, by giving them like higher prices uh, for wheat that is. Uh, captivated uh, domestically. Um, for sure, some farmers have responded to this um, to this uh, policy. But um, to what extent the dom the increase in the domestic uh, uh, supply has covered the gap uh, in the in the consumption 
and have uh, substituted the imports, uh, this uh, might be another question. But uh, this is like a, a, a solution that the government has um, uh, implemented. Uh, also, there might be another option to, um, maybe we, we should think about uh, diversifying the, um, the source of imports or wheat imports, uh, not relying, uh, for example, on importing from one or two sources that uh, can um, uh, make more um, like risk for, uh, for, for the country. Uh, so this is for, for the wheat. Uh, over to Lensa, if she wants to add something. Yeah, uh, for, for Kenya is uh, somehow demand driven. Um, diversification is generally from uh, the preference point of view where the households or individuals are the ones who feel the need to diversify, diversify their diets uh, and engaging more on traditional uh, food uh, food that uh, uh, currently we don't really uh, um, supply. But then uh, the staple food for Kenya uh, currently still remains to be maize. Uh, we have rice, uh, we have wheat, but then uh, most of the diversification is uh, more of from the household side. It's just more of demand uh, driven rather than uh, the supply uh, driven. Um, I think that's uh, the short uh, response that I can have on this. Thanks. Thanks very much, Lenza and, and Mariam. Uh, we're now moving to uh, some closing remarks. It's been a really rich discussion. Many thanks to all of the persons who've submitted questions, and I'm sorry we couldn't get through all of them. Um, Chris Hilbrunner serves as the division chief of the, of the analysis and learning office um, of policy analysis and engagement within the Bureau for Resilience and Food Security at uh, USAID. And it's a great pleasure for us to have you with us today, Chris. And I turn the floor over to you for some a difficult task. Uh, I think uh, some, some closing remarks and maybe some key takeaways as far as USAID is concerned from, from all of these very rich presentations. Over to you, Chris. Thank you, Charlotte. And uh, thank you to my fellow panelists, both uh, on the IFPRI side and country level partners. I think this was a really interesting unpacking of what is a large and complex analysis, but bringing it down to the specific country level in Egypt, Nigeria, and Kenya, and really digging into some of the, the key implications that uh, we're all looking at. Um, so a big thank you. I think this is critical work and some and work that has, in addition to, I hope, uh, driving the conversation at the country level has certainly been influential within USAID as we think about how we respond. So there are, I think, three main themes that I would like to highlight. Um, and I think these are all themes that have come up in the conversation today. And they're also, I think, just generally important aspects of the work that we've been discussing. The first is this unpacking of drivers and really starting to understand that although much of the public dialogue has really focused on increases in food prices, that really we're looking at this more complex set of shocks um, with high fertilizer prices, with high fuel prices, um, in addition to some of the other previous shocks that the current crisis is building on. And so I think bringing this nuanced understanding of the drivers, I think has really added a lot to the discussion about how we collectively respond, but also helps to really inform our thinking about how things might evolve in the future. 
The second piece is the focus on country analysis. I think as my fellow speakers have really commented on today, the not only are the drivers different across different countries, but there are important contextual differences that really change how impacts play out at the country level and what kind of responses are going to be most effective. And again, I think at times we can oversimplify these crises. And so I think this focus on uh, really unpacking at the country level the specific context and the specific kinds of responses uh, really sets an example for the kind of analysis that we should be doing. And I think that feeds right into my last point, and that is around collaboration. I think a big focus of this work has been collaboration, um, donor collaboration. I think jointly working USAID along with colleagues from the Gates Foundation and from FCDO to really identify a set of common questions that are being asked across the donor community, I think has been really critical. And then I think in you know what is a hallmark of a lot of the work that IFPRI does, really collaborating closely with not only IFPRI country offices, but also national governments and other stakeholders to really improve the quality and relevance of the analysis that's happening. Um, and really ensuring that that analysis is helping to inform decision-making and not just uh, something that we're talking about on a webinar. So I think that's really critical. And as panelists have talked about today, you know, we're certainly not out of the woods. Um, the current crisis is ongoing. A variety of other uh, shocks are looming. And I think that this kind of analysis and iterating on this analysis with decision makers is going to be a really key part of how we continue to respond effectively over the coming months. So again, thank you to everyone who joined. I think this is really makes a critical contribution to the work we're doing. And with that, I'll hand it back over to Charlotte. Thank you very much, Chris, for those really excellent um, reflections. And thanks also to, to, to you and USAID for the support of this important work. So we've come, unfortunately, to the end of the seminar. I think we could have done one each on, on uh, Nigeria, Egypt, and Kenya. And of course, we have the other countries, right? This work was done for 19 countries in totality. And I, I would urge our audience to look at our website so you can see the results of the work for those other countries. And um, a big thanks really to all of the speakers. It's really fantastic. I think we've seen the, the, the sort of impact that our uh, country offices have, those very close relationships with policymakers and other actors in your countries. And we're so grateful to all of you for, for having joined us. And, and I wish all of you a very nice rest of your day or evening, wherever you may be. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.